We read earlier from Exodus 20. I'm going to read once more for you the first three verses of that passage in Exodus 20. This is the inspired word of God. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken. And we pray that you indeed would speak to us this morning through your word preached, not because of the preacher, but because it is your word. Speak to our hearts now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we started a new Sunday school class last week uh, on Christian ethics. And we're basically going through the Ten Commandments in that class. And as a starting point on Christian ethics, we decided, well, we, we better decide what exactly it is we're talking about when we use this phrase, Christian ethics. And what we've used as kind of our working definition is that uh, Christian ethics is uh, the study of the way of life that conforms to the will of God, the way of life that is good, that pleases God, and fulfills human nature. Now, part of this is the idea that it conforms to the will of God. And if we're going to know the will of God, there's a couple different senses that we can know it in. One is we generally think of trying to know the will of God. We want to know what exactly God wants us to do in a certain situation or or such. And the problem is that, that oftentimes God does not reveal that to us. There's not necessarily a verse in the Bible that we can turn to that, that tells us what we should have for lunch today. Um, we usually have weightier issues than that that we're looking for the will of God on, but you get the point. Uh, there are times that he does let us know through various circumstances. And uh, I, I, for instance, when we moved here, really felt a very strong assurance that it was the will of God that we do so. Um, there, there were a number of circumstances involved. Aaron and I were having a discussion one day as we were getting close to graduating from seminary looking for a job and we, we didn't have one yet and I suggested to her that perhaps we might want to look in Michigan because the denomination that we're a part of, the EPC, uh, has a lot of churches in Michigan and maybe there'd be something up there. We hadn't really broadened our search to that point and we thought about that for about two seconds and then said, no, nah, it's too cold up there. That's, that's the last thing we want to do. I, we couldn't do that. But then we went on through the day that day. I went to seminary and I was having a discussion that same day with a friend who was also getting ready to graduate. And I said to him, Ben, you know what we need? We're both looking for jobs. What we need is somebody to just call us up and just say, hey, here's our references. We want you to come work for us. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that, we had a chuckle over it. Wouldn't that be great? We thought that was, that was funny. So we went through our day that day and a couple hours later I got home. And when I got home, there was a red light flashing on the answering machine. I went in, I pushed the button and a voice that I'd never heard before spoke to me and said, hello, Pete. My name's Hal Polk. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Presbyterian Church in Flint, Michigan. We're looking for an assistant pastor and I heard you might be looking for a job. We'd love to talk to you. Well, needless to say, that got my attention. It wasn't a sure thing at that point yet. We certainly had to do our due diligence. We had to pray about it and we had to make sure that things lined up right, but, but God got our attention. And he does that sometimes. 
And he'll, he'll lead us in that kind of way. But he doesn't promise to do that in every situation. And furthermore, he usually doesn't do that. What we need to do if we're trying to discern God's will, rather, is look to his word. And guided by the principles found therein, we need to make decisions. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 reads, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Essentially, it's saying that he might be able to live a life that is good and that pleases God. So we said the second part of the definition after knowing the will of God or having a life that conforms to the will of God was a life that fulfills human nature. Now when we talk about human nature we have to be careful there too because sometimes we talk about our sinful nature and indeed we are all sinful by nature having fallen in the garden with Adam when he sinned. But what we're talking about here is not our sinful nature so much as the fact that we were created in the image of God for the glory of God. I think that's the purpose of being human, is that we might be in the image of God for the glory of God. First, let's take a quick peek at this idea of being in the glory of God. What I'm talking about is essentially what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is an idea that's found throughout the Bible. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Romans eleven thirty six. 36, for, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. And John Calvin says, If God contains the fullness of all good things in himself, like an inexhaustible fountain, Nothing beyond him is to be sought by those who strive after the highest good and all the elements of happiness. If the Lord will share his glory, power, and righteousness with the elect, nay, will give himself to be enjoyed by them. And what is more excellent will somehow make them to become one with himself. Let us remember that every sort of happiness is included under this benefit. Indeed, Calvin is right. This idea of glorifying God is not a matter of, of drudgery. It is not some task that we have to go do. No, this is something that should excite us. It is something that is, is as our heart is filled with love for God and an understanding of his graciousness and what he has done for us, it will just pour out of us and we will live lives that are glorifying to him and it will be satisfying but it'll be satisfying in a peculiar sense. It'll be satisfying in the sense that, that an appetizer is satisfying. It's satisfying in that you, you taste an appetizer, mmm, that tastes good. I really enjoyed that, and there was a satisfaction involved with tasting that appetizer. But the whole purpose of an appetizer, is it not, is not to fill you up, but to appetize you, to, to create a longing for more, so that in one sense it's satisfying you but in another sense it's leaving you completely unsatisfied and that is how this this activity of glorifying God is it ought to satisfy us in that it it is a good thing and it tastes good but at the same time it creates in us a longing to have a deeper fuller satisfaction that will come one day when we are free of sin and we can glorify him completely. 
That's why we see that this is the idea, that we are to glorify God and enjoy him forever, both. They go hand in hand, one with the other. God is glorified by our enjoying him. But beyond that, he is glorified by the way we live our lives if we live lives that are conformed to his likeness. We were created in his image. And that image, as we said before, is now fallen. We are no longer in the perfect, we, we are no longer in the perfect image of God. We are still in his image, but it is a, a fallen nature, it is marred. When Adam fell in the garden, we fell with him. But there is a second Adam who has come, a second Adam who came to redeem and to recreate. And that Adam is Jesus Christ. And he is, Colossians 1.15 tells us, the image of the invisible God. And we know from Romans 8.29 that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And that this is not just some far-off plan that will happen someday, but is even happening now, for we know from 2 Corinthians 3.18 that, that even right now we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So when we are more like him, when we are more like Christ, we are more like we are supposed to be. We are more truly human when we are in the image of God for the glory of God. And so God has given us his word, specifically here in Exodus 3 that we've read, that shows us how to live according to that image, how to walk out, how to put flesh on that skeleton, if you will. And we see First, in verse 1, when he begins, it says that God spoke these words, saying. And we need to pause for a second, even before we see what he said. Because the one important thing has already happened at this point. We begin with God spoke these words. God is the initiator here. God comes and he speaks. He begins the relationship. It's not us reaching out and finding him and and asking him some questions and then he responds. Rather, he is the initiator. He is the one who is beginning and he's speaking to us and it is only through his condescending to make himself known that we're even able to know him. For we would be totally unable in our finite minds to comprehend this infinite God were he not to make himself known. So God speaking is the first important thing we see in this passage. God speaks. And just as he initiated relationship with Israel there, he, he also has done it with us. And he has spoken to us, first in calling us to himself, and then also in giving us his written word in the Bible. For it is in this book that we see what he would have us see, and we know what he would have us know which is why we need to spend time reading his word. We need to spend time meditating on his word. We need to spend time praying through his word. We need to, each and every one of us, spend more time with our Bible. We should memorize passages of scripture. We should just let his scripture dwell richly in our hearts so that it might transform us and conform us to his likeness as he would have us. Next, we see what God indeed did speak when he spoke. He said, God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. First of all, we see in this passage what is a uh, prologue, we could call it, in our Reformed tradition. Uh, prologue, the beginning, the, the part before the Ten Commandments. Now, in a uh, Jewish tradition, they would actually consider this phrase to be the first of the Ten Commandments. And you might say, Pete, wait a second. That's not a commandment. It's just kind of a statement. But we need to know that nowhere in the Bible does it actually say in the Hebrew text that these are commands. Rather, that the phrase that is used would be more literally transferred, translated the ten words or the ten sayings. And so uh, it is perfectly logical and, and perhaps even correct to understand that this saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, might actually be the, the first commandment. But whether we take it as the first commandment or as the prologue to the commandments, it serves the same function in either sense. It is kind of the foundational statement for all that is going to follow. And we see that it is the foundational statement in that God has already acted on behalf of the people of Israel. They were in slavery and he delivered them. And he says, therefore, and goes on to say the rest of the commandments. You see, the idea is not God coming to his people and saying, I see you're in slavery. I hear your, hear your cries. I feel sorry for you. And as long as you shape up and do these 10 things to follow, I'll deliver you. That is not how God does it. Rather, what he says is, I will deliver you right now because of my graciousness. And then, as a response to the graciousness that has flowed out over you, as you have been freed from your bondage, have no other gods before me. And so forth through the rest of the commandments. That is how our life must be. Our life must be a life of faithfulness to God's commands, but it must be a life of faithfulness to his commands in response to his graciousness. His gracious provision for us is the thing that gets the whole ball rolling. It needs to be out front. It is the locomotive for the engine of faithfulness, or for the train of faithfulness. Also note, he begins by saying, I am the Lord your God. He doesn't say, I'd like to be the Lord your God, or would you please have me to be the Lord your God? No, he declares, I am the Lord your God. He is stating an empirical truth. It is not something that is debatable. It is not uh, a matter of opinion. It's not, you guys can have your God and you guys have your God. No, he's saying, I am the Lord your God. Whether you worship me or not, whether you bow before me now or not, I am who I am. And that is your God. We see here how he mentions that he brought Israel out of slavery. And so too we apply that to our lives and we know that God has brought us out of slavery too, has he not? Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 reads, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He has delivered us from slavery. Slavery to sin. Slavery to Satan. Slavery to death. We are delivered. And we must respond the same way that was required of Israel. 
you shall have no other gods before me. Now, some of us might say, well, that's easy. We're all here at church. This is clear that we have no other gods, that this is, this is our God. So we don't really have to worry about that. We've got that one down pat, right? Well, maybe. We are created to worship. Blaise Pascal spoke of how there was inside each heart a God-shaped vacuum that could be truly filled only by God. And yet we try to fill it with all kinds of other things. This is because, as John Calvin put it, our hearts are veritable idol factories creating things to worship. Now, we don't have little stone statues maybe that we worship, but we look to idols in different forms. An idol, Tim Keller says, is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you only what what only God can give. If this is true, we need to ask ourselves, what idols do I have? What things do I look to for meaning, for purpose? What things do I derive true satisfaction from? Where am I looking to find these things? Now, some of us might be looking to money. That's a common one. And that's not to say that money in and of itself is wrong. Some people misquote scripture and say money is the root of all evil. But the Bible actually says that the love of money is the root, not money itself. Money is a perfectly neutral thing, I guess, that can be used for either positive or negative purposes. If money is used for the glory of God, then it is a good thing. But if money is the ultimate thing for you, if it is the thing that if only I had more of it, then my life would have meaning, then it is an idol. And you need to repent of that. You need to repent of having broken this very first commandment. Perhaps for you it's love or romance. And if we see love and romance not as a means to the if we see it not as a means toward glorifying God again, but rather as a means to the end of our own personal pleasure, then it too becomes an idol. could be for us our idol might be our family i heard a pastor recently suggest that of all the idols that are acceptable i think with quotes within the christian community that perhaps family is the foremost i think he was probably right again i uh, family is is a wonderful truth a wonderful good thing that god has given us a thing that is foundational to our society to the way that god has structured things It is a wonderful thing. I do not mean to speak badly of the family at all. But the family can become an idol when the well-being of your children or your spouse becomes more important to you than God. We need to make sure that this does not happen. For we see the words of Jesus in Luke 14 where he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now we need to understand this word. The way he says this, it catches us a little off guard, I think. Because 
I don't think we are to understand that we are to hate them literally, but I think what he's saying is that the love that we have for our family members ought to be so secondary to the love that we have for God that it, by comparison, seems to be hatred. Perhaps it's easier for us to understand what he says in Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Family must not become an idol in our lives. Another one that perhaps is even more acceptable within the church, I would say, is our religiosity. We have tasks that we do to serve the church or we we maybe even do really good things like read our bible or come to church on a sunday morning and we think that somehow by doing those things that we have fulfilled some some requirement of us and we essentially make them what is what makes us righteous in reality there is no way that those tasks can make us righteous It is good to gather here on a Sunday morning, but if you are doing it for the purpose of having done your duty, then I would argue that you might be better off not even coming. Because you are deceiving yourself into believing that you can make yourself righteous. If you feel like you've earned a blessing from God by singing in the choir or by coming to church or by reading your Bible or by shoveling your neighbor's sidewalk or whatever you've done. You are wrong. You cannot earn God's blessing. This is not some sort of quid pro quo, tit for tat type relationship we have with God. If we stop and think about it, we realize how ridiculous that idea is. He gave me, you know, he gave his life for me. Okay, on one hand, he gave his life, uh, I'll give him a couple perfunctory prayers and maybe a song or two. The scales don't exactly balance, do they? He gave rescue from eternal damnation. I'll give him the change I have in my pocket. Again, we're not exactly balancing here. He gave me eternity. I'll give him an hour every week. That's less than one half of one percent of all my time. You see, the reality is that all of our life has to be lived for him and given to him. Anything less is just a farce. It's just a joke, really. We need to give God our time, our resources, our love, our worship, our loyalty, our devotion. And to do anything less is, is just a sad, sad betrayal of him because he has already blessed us so richly he has made the church his bride he has poured out his love to us and if we look to any other idol then we are boldly betraying him right in front of his face that's what he means when he says i should have no other gods before me it doesn't mean you know go ahead and have a whole lot of gods but just make sure i'm in the number one position no he's saying it's not before me in that sense, it's before me as in in front of me or before my face. He's saying, don't let me see you having any other gods. And when God's saying, don't let me see you, well, that means pretty much anywhere, doesn't it? 
because we know that God can see our deeds. He looks down from heaven and sees all the children of man, Psalm 33 tells us, and he knows beyond that our thoughts. First Chronicles 28.9 says, The Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. So anytime we betray God, anytime we set up an idol of any kind before him, he sees, he knows that we have been unfaithful to him. And this should scare us. This should scare us because that is a terrible thing to do. At the same time, though, there's a tremendous freedom in this because he has already forgiven us in Christ Jesus He has loved us and made us part of his family. He has made us his children. And it was not because of anything we did. It was in spite of what we have done. And since it was not our deeds that got us into his family, then our deeds cannot get us out of his family. We are bound to him by his gracious sovereignty. And so we can have the freedom to come before him and share with him those things that are sins in our life. We can pour out our hearts to him, confessing to him every place where we have fallen short. And we need not fear as we might with our human relationships. If only he finds this out of me, he will no longer love me. We don't need to fear that with God. That is what we fear with other people. We don't want to share the truth of what we have done and what we have thought, because we fear what they might think of us. But we need not have this fear with God, because he already knows. He knows, and so, since he has loved us despite that, let us honestly and openly come before God and ask his Holy Spirit to reveal to us all those ways that we have fallen short of worshiping him and glorifying him alone. Let us ask honestly and openly repent of these things, turning away from them and seeking to follow after God alone. And let us honestly and openly rejoice at the forgiveness that is promised by the one who says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The one who came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. The one who came to heal us and to save us. Let us worship him and him alone. Yes, on Sunday mornings, and also maybe on Wednesday nights, and Thursday afternoons, and Monday while we're at work, and every other part of our life. Let it be a life of worship, a life that glorifies God. And in that way, we can truly say that we have no other gods before him. Both in the parts of our lives that are open to the world watching us and the parts of our lives that occur behind closed doors, visible to no eyes but God's alone. May he be worshipped and glorified. And may we have a closer walk with him. Let us pray. Lord God, we do thank you. We thank you for your word, that you have given it to us, that we might know your will. And we pray that your will might just be something that is more true of us 
we might be conformed to it, following the example of Jesus Christ and empowered by the Spirit of him who lives in us. It is in his name we pray.